John 8, beginning in verse 12, give your attention to the reading of God's word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He told them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Let's pray. Send out your light and your truth, O Lord, and let them lead us. Let them bring us to your holy hill. And to your dwelling place. Amen. Life has its moments of novelty and of excitement, new experiences, new sights, adventures. We prayed with thanksgiving for a good trip to Washington, D.C. I still remember my first trip to D.C. and all the new things that you get to encounter. Visiting new places is fun. Meeting new people, developing new relationships, or learning new skills, gaining new opportunities to use them. Life has its moments of novelty and excitement. And when you add all of that up, it's probably 10% of the time that you will be alive. Because the other 90% of life is repetitive. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You get up, you do the things that you do to prepare for the day. You do the things that you're supposed to do within the given day. And then you call it a day. That's true even of good experiences. Some of you, many of you, have traditional vacations in your family or social group, and you like taking them again and being in that familiar place. Good experiences, enjoyed often, are still repetitive. 
If you were to write a biography about your life or anyone else's, I can assure you that if you want someone to read it, you should not include a description of every day of your life. So many are just the same. Even a great life, well-lived, a life filled with joy and blessings, can't escape the fact that life is repetitive. You've seen this movie before. Jesus was fully man. The scriptures say that he was born of a woman, born under the law. They remind us that he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we are. And it's easy to forget sometimes that Jesus, other than sin, had the whole of the human experience. And that includes repetition. Again, that's not all bad. For Jesus, every day involved complete satisfaction and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. But during his public ministry, that meant many of his days were the same. He, too, had seen this movie before. And reading this morning's passage, that's probably our experience. Is he re-preaching this passage? Didn't we just hear this a couple weeks ago? No. It's a different day, a different experience. And yet, the same thing all over again. Another confrontation with the religious rulers. Another verse of this same song. And if we think about it, it makes perfect sense that this would be repetitive because nothing has changed. Jesus hasn't changed who he is, who sent him, what he is here to do. And the religious rulers haven't changed. They still don't believe. They don't know who Jesus really is or who sent him, where he's come from. And once again, in verse 13, they are challenging his testimony about himself. They're sticking with that opinion still that he is a self-appointed prophet, that he needs someone to corroborate his testimony, to certify his validity. And note that on one level, this recurring accusation doesn't trouble Jesus at all. He knows that the Father sent him. He knows that he and the Father are one. And so as this criticism comes again and again, as this attack and accusation are made on one level, it doesn't bother him at all. It's a really good reminder and example that when we are under attack, we don't have to be defensive if we're confident in who we are. Jesus isn't troubled by this attack because he is 100% certain that it cannot be true, that their accusation is false. And so he doesn't have to get defensive. He doesn't have to be worried or hung up on what others may say or think about him. And so he's not troubled by their attack. But he is troubled by the attackers because of what it means for them. He tells them that they don't know him or his father. And therefore, verse 23, you're from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. It's harsh, but it's true. 
and it's significant. It needed to be said. That's also not the first time that he's had to tell them this. They don't want to believe. And until and unless the Father draws them, they won't believe. So that framework of this confrontation is repetition. It's the same. We've seen it before. And once again, Jesus will use a metaphor for himself as he continues to reveal himself. He uses a description drawing a connection to earthly things, and this time, light. And it's fitting that he would use a lot of these metaphors over time. As one scholar puts it, there's no single metaphor that can do justice to the greatness of Christ. And so that's why he's life, and also light, and also bread, and also water. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. We heard this indirectly when Jesus said it of John, when John said it of Jesus in his prologue. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And now Jesus, as with the previous metaphor, standing in the midst of the temple in the Feast of Booths, uses a metaphor That is from what's happening all around it. Last week, we talked about water. But this week, he says, I am the light of the world. Around Jesus in the temple courts are four humongous lamps. And during this feast, they were ceremonially lit. And it was a big deal to see these four things light up and all of the light that they could produce And those lights, of course, were in the temple because they were a recognition, a remembrance of the pillar of light that Israel had followed in the wilderness. That light that was God's leading and direction and where those who rebelled against it died in the desert and did not inherit the promised land. But those who followed God's guidance, followed his light, reached Canaan and inherited the promise. Light was a big deal in their religious history. Light's a big deal for us. It it may be a repetitive part of our lives, something we take for granted, but it's still significant. Think about all the things we love that are simply just various forms of light. We love fireworks. We love meteors. You guys remember a few years ago when later laser pointers were a thing and everybody had a laser pointer? We're impressed and intrigued by light. It's cool. Light is significant. And this morning, since as we've had these other encounters between Jesus and the religious rulers, and so I feel like we've explored in depth the cause of those confrontations, and we've explored the specifics of Jesus' response, why he says what he says about they don't know who he is, this morning I thought we would dig a bit more deeply into the metaphor. It's a little, if you're a, a connoisseur of sermons it's a little more textual topical sermon than a normal exegetical one of course if you're a connoisseur of sermons this probably isn't the right church for you Uh, but this morning let's talk about light and light is a multi-faceted metaphor one pastor wrote jesus is the light of the world that means to the ignorant he proclaims wisdom to the impure holiness to those in sadness gladness 
Moreover, to those who by sovereign grace are drawn to the light and follow its guidance, he not only proclaims but actually imparts these blessings. All of this is a facet. Each is a facet of this light metaphor. So this morning I thought we'd consider three facets of the metaphor, three ways that our understanding of Christ is illuminated by the metaphor of light. Come on, I get a pun every now and then. First, Light provides clarity for right judgment. Kids, think about being in a dark woods or in a dark room. It's light that reveals the way to go. As kids, we used to play games and we'd wander back in the woods, as I know many of you do now. And sometimes we get so far back in the woods, it would be nearly pitch black. And then you'd start looking around, all around you, hoping to see, just peeking through the leaves somewhere, light from somebody's house or porch that would show you, oh yeah, that's the way that the neighborhood is. That's the way that I need to go. Who wants to judge which direction is the right way to go in total darkness? How confident can you be? You can go as quickly as you want, but you can very quickly end up very far from where you're supposed to be without some light. How confident can you be that you're going the right direction if there's not at least a sliver of light to guide you? In this encounter, the Pharisees are trying to judge Jesus' words and who Jesus is in the dark. That's why they disagree or misunderstand everything that he says. He says, I am the light of the world, and they accuse him of bearing false witness about himself. He says his judgment is true because he and the Father are one, and they judge in light, and they complain that they can't see his Father from here. Where is he? And then later, when he says he's going away, they misunderstand that as well. They cannot understand anything. They cannot judge rightly because their vision is missing the light of Christ, the light of the world. C.S. Lewis has that famous quotation. It's one of Jake's favorite, where he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is why Jesus says to them here that he doesn't judge. He doesn't mean he doesn't judge at all. He actually is judging right here. He says so. And in verse 16, he makes it explicit. He's saying he doesn't judge as they do. He doesn't judge from a position of blindness from the dark. The world judges by such clueless and superficial criteria. They judge without any knowledge or experience. This is the number of times that I've been in a conversation with someone and they're telling me about why I don't want to go visit a city, about why it's not a place that you'd ever want to go on vacation. And I would say, oh, you've been? And they say, no. Or somebody's telling you all about a movie and how bad this movie is. And you say, oh, you've seen it. No. The world judges from a position of blindness. And Christ says to them, I do not judge, not that way. The Father and I judge uniformly. We judge by the same light. And that light is available to us. Now the world thinks that we should not judge at all. Even within the church you'll hear people say, oh, don't judge. The worst thing you can do is to be judgmental. But that is nonsense. 
You can't go through the Christian life without judging. You should not go through the Christian light without judging. You should judge by the light of Christ, the light that is available to us, the light that illuminates things rightly. Not as the world does, but by the light of the world. This means that we don't judge with arrogance because the first thing that the light of Christ illuminates for us is our own sin. We see that we too have fallen short of the glory of God. We see that we too are sinners in need of a savior. And so any other judgment that we make is made from the perspective, not of someone who's high and mighty way up here, but someone who is down at the foot of the cross as a recipient of grace. We judge with humility because the light of Christ showed us our own sin. We also judge not playing favorites. We judge, as the Bible says, without partiality. We judge with right judgments. We don't judge someone's behavior as right because we like them without thinking about the behavior. We don't put some people in a privileged position because of who they are or what they have while we look down at others. No, we judge rightly. No partiality. And this means we have to judge by right standards. We judge by God's standards. Christ illuminates the truth of God, not the perceptions and the opinions and the imaginations of men. And so we must judge. And we can judge. We judge because Christ is the light of the world. And we can judge rightly because Christ is the light of the world, which has illuminated our path. There's a rather tragic example of this happening right now in the Reformed and Presbyterian world. As this weekend, one of our like-minded denominations hosted what has become an annual event, a conference called Revoice. And it's a, it's a conference that is intended, if you take them at their word, to provide encouragement and hope to people who identify as Christian, but also want to identify with and associate with unbiblical forms of sexuality. And what Christ says in this passage speaks directly to this. As we think about the kind of judgments that he dismisses as wrong and from below by the religious rulers and the kind of judgments that he invites us into, the judgment of he and the Father, you see all of them at play here because what's being judged in this case being judged as right and good and acceptable is by God's standard not right and good and acceptable and the reason that they're wanting to remake it the reason that they're wanting to relabel it and say that it's okay is because they're judging with partiality they're taking people that they like nice people polite people People that are in some ways insulted and persecuted and oppressed. People that in some ways we should be coming to the defense of. And yet they're saying because we judge these people in a partial way, we're allowed to throw out what the light of Christ reveals about truth and instead judge the rest of the world by human standards and not by God's. 
when we judge by the light of our experience and not by the light of the world, we will never judge as Christ judges. And that's true if it's our preferences or what makes us popular or even what feels in the short term like it hurts less. We can judge only by the light of the world. Light is a fitting metaphor for Christ, secondly, because light also provides hope. Darkness isn't always bad. Sometimes we want darkness. I don't know about in your household, but in mine, we've become quite picky about our sleep, and we want very dark, very cold rooms with, in our case, bursting uh, eardrum-bursting levels of white noise. Darkness isn't always bad. We like to be outside in a very dark night away from light pollution to look up at the sky. We appreciate that darkness. Of course, if you think about both of those examples, though, the reason that we like the dark is because it makes the light stand out more brightly. We want to be able to sleep well so that when the light of day comes, we have energy for the occasion. We want to be out away from light pollution on a dark night so that we can see the stars and the majesty of those heavenly lights on a beautiful evening. What would be terrible is if we could never return to the light. Knowing that we will only and always be in darkness would feel empty. It would feel hopeless. There are studies out there, people that live in Alaska, where in the winter parts of Alaska have only a few hours of sun a day, and there are actually some extreme parts of Alaska that have none for a time. And seasonal affective disorder, those winter blues that come from not being exposed to enough light are 10 times more prevalent in Alaska than in the continental 48. Light matters. It feels hopeless to be trapped in darkness. Don't you see why that's an apt metaphor spiritually? (laughs) This is the judgment that Jesus pronounces on the unbelieving and unrepented Jews. We've talked about AD 70 before and the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the Jews calling out to God to send the Messiah to come and save them from this destruction. And that's what Jesus means when he says, you will look for me, but you cannot find me. They will call out for Messiah, but they've already rejected him. And so he says, you will remain in darkness. You will die in your sins. That is the hopelessness of darkness. And and light is a metaphor for Christ because light gives hope. One pastor said that true followers will not walk in the darkness of ignorance, impurity, and gloom. They will reach the land of light. Think about being lost in a cave. I don't know if you've ever explored caves before. I've done it on tours or Boy Scout trips, but never when I was in any real danger. You read these articles of people that get lost or trapped in caves for hours or days or in some rare cases even weeks their flashlight dies there's danger and there's risk in every direction they're stumbling around sometimes crawling to try and find a path forward what would give more hope to the person who has no hope 
trapped in this cave. Can you imagine anything that would provide more hope than a sliver of light off in the distance? What about emotionally? In times of great trial, trials that wear us down and the hits keep coming. Think even about the common language we use to describe when things start to turn around. How do we describe this to our loved ones? We say, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. We say that because light produces hope. And so it is with Christ. He tells the religious rulers that sin is the darkness that leads to death. And we know that before Christ, it's in that darkness that we walked. David wrote in Psalm 18, Lord, it is you who light my lamp, you who lighten my darkness. Paul wrote to the Romans, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of of light. Christ came into the world so that by his light, those who were in darkness would have hope. And yes, we go through dark times in this life, but it can never be completely dark because the light of Christ is always shining. It can be hard. It can be very hard. But for the believer, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot be hopeless. No matter how dark it gets, it cannot be hopeless because the light of Christ is shining. Finally, light is a fitting metaphor for Christ because light comes from above. It comes from the Father. And this is why these men These accusers of Jesus can't see it. He tells them, you are from below, verse 23. They're not looking up. They're looking down. They are not of what's above. So they're not like what's above. They're of what's below. And so they are like what's below, which is darkness. And they are, you see it in these interactions, repetitive as they are. You do see that they build, that they are hardening, that they are darkening their own hearts in this blindness. They're digging in deeper and deeper. One of the most troubling things about these passages, these interactions that Jesus has with the Jews, is you look at all of the things that Jesus tries to tell them about themselves, verses like 22 and 25 and 26, where Jesus very plainly says something about them, and they hear none of it. They never respond to any of his accusations about them. They never pause to reflect about what Jesus says about them. What a dangerous place to be when we use the light of God to see others and never ourselves. When we don't begin by seeing ourselves as we are exposed in that light. And so then we do what they do. We hide ourselves in darkness. And in as much as we use the light, we use it to lash out at others. That's exactly the kind of judging that scripture says we're not to do. That the light of Christ comes to us from the Father. And so it leads us back to the Father. This is the Father's love for us. That he did not leave us in this darkness. Genesis 1, the earth is formless and void. There's darkness. 
And the Lord says, let there be light. And then in John 1, the sin-stained and cursed world that we've made by our rebellion hovers in darkness. And the light, the light of the Father comes into the world. He sends his Son so that in Christ we may see, we may find our way back to the Father because he draws us by this light. John says to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave gave the right to become children of God. This means that we don't go our own way. We don't stumble around in the dark thinking that our way shows us the right path forward. We use the clarity that his light provides for how to live, how to live in his way. Another pastor said to follow the light, Christ means to trust and obey him. That the obligation of the Christian life is that we have to follow where the light leads. We can't just map out our own course through the desert of this life. That's no different than a flashlightless fool stumbling his way through a cave. We follow the light of Christ, which the Father sent for us. That's why it leads back to the Father. It's why it leads to holiness and to righteousness to the Father who said, Be holy as I am holy. Kids, you know that the moon makes no light of its own. The moon is what we call a lesser light. It doesn't produce its own light. It reflects as it gets across cosmically from the sun. The sun produces the light and it bounces off of the moon and we see it. That's what the moon was made to do, not to produce its own light, but to reflect the light of another and the moon can still be quite glorious can it you've seen full moons and harvest moons and they are majestic we are the lesser lights all of the light comes from the father through christ for us we were made to reflect a light that is not naturally our own. He gives us illumination and we illuminate him for the world and the world for him as it glorifies him. He gives understanding and we use it to judge rightly. He gives us the light of Christ and we hope even in the darkness we hope and point the world Toward a glorious hope. Christ is the most glorious reflection of the Father's light. That's where John began in his prologue and what Jesus affirms here. So much so that Christ is the light, not just a reflection of it. In him, God's attributes shine forth for all the world to see. And so he is the light of the world. Is he your light? And when the world sees you, can it see his light? May he be our light now and forever. Amen.